Hi, I'm Seth Mosley, and we are here on the Full Circle Music Show live from Music Makers Boot Camp with a live studio audience. We've got uh, Dave and JJ Heller here, right from this hometown of Franklin, Tennessee. Have been independent artists for 14 years. Have made a great career out of it. Are actually our neighbors. Actually, just came out with a fantastic Christmas record. It's never too late to listen to Christmas music. So, little plug for their Christmas record. It was like my soundtrack pretty much for entire uh, month of like November and December. And we were listening to it in Sweden on a white Christmas. It was just like the perfect thing. So, check that out. And um, I'm just amazed at what these guys have been able to do and the impact that they've been able to have just completely doing it on their own. So, I think you guys are going to be inspired. So, give a amazing welcome to Dave and JJ Heller. So I'm JJ, and this is my husband, Dave. We've been married for almost 14 years, and that's when we started our music career full-time together. And we were just excited to share our story with you um, because we feel like it's a little bit of a different perspective. When we were starting our career and wanting to pursue music, we didn't even really think that being independent artists was an option. And so we wanted to take a minute and let you know our story, just so you know that there are other avenues available to pursue a music career. Also, in our story, there are several miraculous events that have happened. And so we just want to tell you that we hope that there are different little nuggets that you can take away, but everybody's story is unique and different. But I think what we want to convey is the fact that no matter what your story is, that you need to work hard where you are so that when the Lord does provide those opportunities, that you're ready to step into that and you are prepared and equipped to do that. We met in college and we started playing music together and then we got engaged and decided that once we got married, we would try to pursue music as a career and we would just attempt it for a year. And if we were worse off at the end of that year than we were at the beginning, then we would do something normal. It was basically like if we moved from eating from rice-a-roni boxes to just like just plain rice. Yeah, just, just, just the rice food yeah. by itself. No flavor. So we were, uh, that, and at the end of that first year, it was a really close call. We were barely scraping by, and we spent lots of time just playing music for tips. We would drive to our church. They would let us borrow their sound system. We would pick up the sound system. We would drive to a coffee shop, set up the sound system, play. A three-hour set. In the middle of the summer at night when like it was like. 105 degrees. <laughs> yeah. In, in Phoenix in, in the evening. The sun's gone down. You're just like baking. And we would play for three hours for like $75. And we'd pack up the sound system at the end of the night and be like, somebody paid us money to play music. This is amazing. <laughs> it was. And then slowly from there, we started to move beyond just getting tips to actual honorariums of like $50 for three hours. <laughs> and when we were in college, we played at this coffee shop that gave us the opportunity to purchase a recording of the concert. And so we did that and that's what we sold at the beginning. So we would play our sound system and then we would have our music for sale. And once we saved up enough money selling those, we actually made a studio recording and we worked with a guy in Arizona. That was a big learning experience for us. We kept playing and eventually moved to higher paying gigs, but it wasn't until we, oh, you should tell them about the Arizona house. I feel like as an independent artist, one of the really important 
things for us to figure out was how to be able to make our personal finances work. And one of the major decisions that you have to make is where not to spend your money, right? And so, like, we shared a car, and we shared a cell phone, and we didn't have cable TV, and, like, we just lived as simply as we possibly could. And all of the money that we didn't spend on luxuries were what helped us to, like, pour into our music, right? The thing that really kept us going throughout those early years was the fact that, like, we would play songs and we would see people responding emotionally to JJ's lyrics and JJ connecting with people. And so, like, if you play a song and people cry, you know that you're connecting. And if you play a song and people laugh, you know that you're connecting, hopefully if they're laughing on purpose. (laughs) Um, We started realizing that a big part of JJ's ministry was being able to be vulnerable about her own story and in many cases her like struggle with fear and that kind of came out out of realizing that she was dealing with anxiety what we would do in Arizona is we would kind of like drive out to Southern California and stay with some friends in Southern California and like play churches out there and then we would drive up I-5 and go up to the Bay Area and stay with JJ's parents and we would play at churches around the Bay Area and then we'd kind of drive back and like do this L over and over again. And like out here, you can drive for two hours and be at like another major metropolis. Out there, it's like six hours of desert. And then it's like, oh, we made it to a place. So like we would do that over and over again for like about the first three years that we were playing music. And about three years in, JJ was sharing from the stage at a church about like what her experience was with anxiety and panic. And she had written a song about that. And after we played, a man came up and talked to JJ and said, like, hey, like, I used to deal with anxiety too. And I went through this course that was really incredible for me. Um, It was like a collection of CDs. And God told me that I should buy it for you. So, like, here's a check. So he gave JJ this check. And we looked at it after we drove away from the church, and it was for, like, $500, okay? And at the time, $500 might as well have been, like, $10,000, right? It was, like, a big deal. But it was a really instrumental moment for JJ because, like, she was able to see, one, that, like, somebody was responding to her story, but, two, the CD series was actually about other people telling their stories with anxiety and how they were able to move past it. So during that exact same visit, somebody else came up to us, and this was, like, during the whole real estate bubble in, like, 2008. Real estate in Arizona was, like, going crazy. And another person at that California church had purchased a home outside of Phoenix and was like, hey, I bought this house. And one of the contractual arrangements in purchasing the house is that I can't rent it for a year. So I'm just looking for some people to house it. Would you guys be interested in living in my house for free for a year? Yes. And we, yeah, we were like, <laughs> let's think. Yes. Yeah. So um, we ended up being able to like rent the little condo that we owned by that time. And we lived in this person's house and we're able to pay off our car, pay cash for like the first record that we made in Nashville for the first time. And I feel like all the way through our career, the Lord has just provided financially in ways for us to be able to responsibly take care of our career. Something that I tell a lot of people as they're wanting to make records because they're so expensive to make. If you invest in your record and you make it, and then before that record's paid off, you start making another record, you don't have a business model. You just have a really expensive hobby. It's been so important for us before we move to the next project to make sure that we're very confident that the previous record is going to take care of itself. 
And that first record that we made in Nashville was really a pivotal moment for us in our career because at that point we had made two records. Is that right? With just a producer in Phoenix. Yeah, we don't talk about them anymore. Yeah, we don't. We don't like to mention those. But we had made a few relationships along the way and heard about this producer in Nashville named Mitch Dane. So we met with him, and we were nervous because we had had a bad experience with a producer who we met in Phoenix who was supposed to be like the guy in Phoenix. And I was talking to that guy about maybe producing a record with him. And it felt kind of condescending. And if we didn't want to make a record that was going to be blow up the charts, then he didn't really want to be a part of it. And so I said, okay, Even though well. he didn't have a track record with any charts? Yeah, no, he just had this this attitude that I didn't love. And so we're like, okay, well, maybe we should go to Nashville. And so we heard about Mitch Dane. So we went to meet with him and we were... Mitch had produced records for Jars of Clay and Bebo Norman at the time, like was doing really well. And Mitch had produced one of his records. And so he had a lot of actual credibility. Yeah. And so Dave and I going into this meeting, we're like, okay, if that producer in Arizona acted this way, then like Mitch is probably going to be even worse because he has a reason to be arrogant and condescending. And so we met with him and he was just completely the opposite. And he wanted to hear our hearts and how we met Jesus and what kind of record we wanted to make and what God had put on our hearts to communicate. And so we're like, okay, you are the guy. And so we went and we made a record with him. And what we learned during that experience is that not only are producers supposed to make you sound the best that you can, but also to bring out the best in you and to highlight your strengths and let you know what your strengths are. And in that case, Mitch was really great and kind of pointing us in the right direction because leading up to that time, I kind of wanted to be like, Alanis Morissette or like Jennifer Knapp was a big influence on me at that point. Just kind of like the rocker belted out. And so those were kind of the songs that we were writing and the way that I was singing. And Mitch, in his very gentle way, said, hey, JJ, have you noticed that your voice sounds really great when you sing quietly? <laughs> I was like... Oh, you are totally right. And so that kind of like started us in this new direction where, I mean, once he said it, it made total sense and we were able to operate in our strengths. Um, But sometimes it takes that outside voice to identify what those strengths are because you think you know what you are in your head, but it's great to have people who you trust to be that sounding board for you. I think along those lines too, we kind of had a vision for what we wanted our career to look like when we started out. And we didn't really want to have anything to do with like Christian music per se. Like we wanted to like go play clubs and go into bars. And at the time uh, when we started, Switchfoot was like doing really well with their sort of like crossover content and stuff. Yeah, like like singing songs with spiritual content, but not necessarily in the context of a church. Yeah. And what we very quickly realized, especially during that first year, was that JJ was writing songs from her heart that actually had spiritual content that wasn't necessarily overt, but it meant a lot to her. And when we were playing in these secular environments, whether it was like a college show or at a club or a bar, people weren't actually listening to the lyrics. And it was like really important for JJ to actually find a listening audience. And the place that we found a listening audience was in churches, right? Like you kind of step into an environment where people are ready to listen. Like that's what they're set up to do. So starting to pay attention to like who JJ's audience was in addition to that style sort of conversation that Mitch brought in really began to crystallize the identity of who JJ was as an artist. 
And I think like right about that time when we made our first record that Mitch produced, that was about three years into our career. And I was booking all the shows. Like we were touring out of a Honda Element. Most of the time we were playing church services in the morning and then saying like, hey, like in the evening, could we put on a special event? for free and like the people who are attending the church service if they enjoy what they've heard in the morning they can come back for an evening event because like nobody would know who JJ was when she came and played in those Sunday services it was like that was their first taste and then they could decide that morning if they wanted to come back in the evening and I feel like I kept looking for the magic bullet like what is going to make this easier and for me that was an opening slot on a tour somewhere right to be able to like to somehow find like the Cademan's Call gig or like Jars of Clay or whoever happened to be out who we felt we would be like a great fit for. But we were out in Arizona and not necessarily making like huge waves and that opportunity really never materialized. And so what that meant was we just had to keep working really hard and start building relationships with the churches that we kept going to. A cold call is just like the worst, right? Has anybody tried to book their own shows? You're like trying to build credibility with somebody. Just like on the phone, they haven't seen your photo. They haven't listened to any of your music at all. It is really difficult. But at that same period as we made this record in Tennessee, MySpace was coming around. And so like here is this platform that is able to sort of begin making some inroads with people where like we could direct them and they could see that I think JJ had like 10,000 MySpace fans by that time or something like that. But like you start to direct people to places where like they can see credibility and start to know that they can trust JJ in front of their congregation. And I feel like we kept pursuing avenues to be able to build that trust and direct people to places where they could see that what we had to bring was worthwhile. So we got married and then we're pursuing our music career. And then the summer after that, we went to an event called Music in the Rockies, which was sponsored by the Gospel Music Association. <laughs> ben knows what we're talking about. It's kind of like this. Yeah, that's true. It is. It, like the thing that was different is that they had like a competition. Yes, and which so, drew most of the people. <laughs> yeah. And so like people would come for this talent competition, but like between the competition, they would have like sessions like this. So it was just like songwriters talking about songwriting and producers talking about producing. And it was just sort of like the boot camp for the industry. Yeah, and it was so pivotal for us because we learned a lot about how the music industry operated and we didn't really know before we went how a label works and how a record deal works and how long it takes you to pay back the loan that they give you to make your record. And that was kind of our first... That loan is called recoupable expenses. Right. And that was kind of when we first started wondering about pursuing an independent career. And also there were songwriting critique sessions and so we signed up for that and this A&R guy who had been in the industry even at that point for years and years was critiquing songs and we were sitting there as we would listen to different songs by uh, by the artists who came and some of the songs were like I don't know what he's gonna say about this one because they just weren't really that great but he was amazing at finding constructive criticism like things that were just really helpful and so it came to ours he played our song and he said okay I can tell that you guys are songwriters but 
I feel like you are at a fork in the road. You can either continue writing songs like this, like you have been, and know that you probably will never have a record deal. You'll never have a song on Christian radio. Or you could tweak your lyrics a little bit, make them a little bit more straightforward and accessible and and have a shot at more like a broader success. And so we went back and kind of like discussed it a little bit and prayed about it and thought about it. And we felt like, I think we just need to write the songs that God gives us to write. And we don't want to try to make it be something that's manufactured that doesn't feel true to the way that we write songs and, and who we are. And so at that time, it was like, okay, well, we'll never be on the radio, but that's okay. Like we just kind of made peace with that. And so it was so interesting when about six years into our career, we wrote a song with a friend of ours and it was at a time when I was just really, really struggling with panic attacks and anxiety. And we wrote a song about that, about where is God when we're suffering and when we're struggling and and does he care? And so it was really interesting that like, so we released that song and then about a year and a half later, a girl decided to use that song for her audition on the show, So You Think You Can Dance. And a program director... Viewership for that that show was like 7 million people. Mm -hmm. So... A little bit more than who had ever heard our music before. <laughs> just a few, <laughs> just a handful. And so a program director at a radio station in Houston had taped the show and then watched it a few weeks later. And he watched it and he could tell that the song was by a Christian artist. And so he Googled the lyrics, he found me, and he happened to be filling in for one of his morning DJs the next morning. And so just on a whim, he decided to play our song. And then a woman called in and she said, man, thank you for playing that song. That's exactly what I needed to hear because my husband is addicted to prescription pain medication. And, you know, she goes on to share her heart about that. More people call in to encourage her and to also share their stories. And then they play the entire segment again later in the day. More people call in and then all of a sudden they're just getting emails and phone calls like, what is this song? And then at the end of the week at their meeting, they decided to add our song to medium rotation on their playlist. And so he calls us to tell us and we're like, yay, what is medium rotation? And then that program director at this radio station is called KSBJ in Houston. They happen to be a really influential station. And so there's this forum online for radio station people. And so he wrote there like, hey, guys, just want you to know I found this artist, JJ Heller, and our audience is really responding to her song. And then all of a sudden, like stations all over the country started to play our song. So yeah, like by the end of the year, that was 2009. So like by Christmas, that song was on billboard charts. It had like millions of impressions with radio listeners. And I am so convinced that if we had taken that song and sent it to radio without that story actually taking place, radio would have been like, nice song. This is not a single. Yeah, this this doesn't work for us. But like, it was just one of those things where we feel like the hand of God was like, mm-hmm. I want this song on the radio, yeah. right? And we would listen to it and it sounded nothing like anything that was playing at the time. But I feel like it was actually a huge advantage for us because it sounded nothing like anything that was on the radio. And so like we were able to follow up that single with another one that ended up being played as well. We made a music video for the second single and it provided a whole new level of 
platform for JJ to be able to share the music that she'd already been sharing for six years previous to that. And just on a personal note, that song, because it was so close to my heart and so vulnerable, it was so cool to me how here's a song that we wrote about that like tragedy and heartbreak. And then once it ended up on the radio, we started to receive just a flood of email messages and Facebook posts and letters in the mail from people telling us their stories about how they got into their car and maybe they were on their way to a funeral or they were coming home from visiting a friend in the hospital or just story after story of people who were in a broken place and how God used our song to bring them hope and to remind them of the truth. And so for me to hear those stories and then to think about the time when we wrote the song and how broken I was to see how God was able to turn my pain into a song and then use that song in the lives of thousands of people who I've never met is just such a tangible reminder to me of how good he is and how he's so good at taking our brokenness and turning it into something beautiful. So um, we had a song on the radio and we kind of did things backwards because normally what happens is you would hire a radio promoter and they would pitch the songs. They would call up different radio stations and say, hey, there's this song by this new artist, JJ Heller, and this is what it's about. And could you listen to it? And they're basically like lobbyists and they try to get the stations to fall in love with your song so that they'll add it to their playlist. But they were just adding it without a radio promoter calling it. It was it just had this momentum. And so we started off with like the biggest radio stations playing the song. And then we ended up hiring a radio promoter to kind of follow up with all the littler stations who might not have heard about the song. But it was crazy. And then after that, we pitched another song. What happened was we we got invited to go play at K-Love at their studios. And we, we told our story, sang our song. And then they said, is there any other song that you want to play? Something that's been special in your career? And so we played this song this called... at the time when... K-Love would actually let artists play anything live. Yes, that's true. Like, now it's all pre-recorded. Anymore. and yeah. yeah, they were crazy. <laughs> it was like, all right. Here's our audience of millions. Say yeah. whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we said, well, yeah, we have this song that we wrote a few years ago called What Love Really Means. And it's a song that's been connecting with people more than any other song that we've written. And uh, it's just a song about love and about how God loves us no matter what we've done in our past or no matter what we will do in our future. So we played that song live on the air and Scott Smith, um, one of the DJs there, who he just fell in love with that song. And so we pitched that song next and everybody started playing it. And it was really funny because our whole career, people have been saying like, it's impossible to get on Christian radio. And we're like, no, it's not. (laughs) You just need a miracle. And then you just pitch in the next song that you think is good. (laughs) And then what was really amazing, um, also on a personal note, was at that time, when Your Hands ended up on the radio, we had just had our first baby. And when we were touring, we took her with us wherever we went. She was on 60 plane flights before she turned one. And fortunately, she was very small. And so we called her our travel size baby. And uh, so we just took her everywhere with us, which was exhausting because she was a really fussy baby. Um, But then we wanted to have another baby. And we were just thinking logistically, okay, how is that going to work? How are we going to take a toddler with us wherever we go and a newborn on an airplane? And 
we were mostly doing fly dates at the time. And so basically like we'd get up early in the morning, get on a plane, fly somewhere, drive a few hours, get to the venue, have sound check, play the show, go back to the hotel, spend the night, get up in the morning, drive back to the... So it's like lugging a newborn and a toddler like all around. It just sounded insane. So we're like, okay, Lord, what what are we going to do? Like, how do we keep touring and have a healthy family and not drive me insane? Um, Cause I like, I wish I was more easygoing, but I just, I get overwhelmed easily. And so I think the Lord knew that <laughs> it was very gracious. And so he's like, okay, well, how about I put your song on the radio and now you can afford to buy a tour bus and then you can keep your family together. Because when we had our first baby, I was already thinking like, okay, Lord, how do we do this? How do we be independent artists and have a family and afford to do that and take care of them? And so my prayer has always been like, make it known to me when and if we're supposed to stop doing this. And I feel like my sign from him that it's time to move on and do something else is going to be when we can't find a way for our family to be healthy um, and function and thrive. And so when we got pregnant with our second baby, it was like, okay, Lord, I don't know, what are we going to do? And, and so I feel like he just, because of that radio play and that national exposure, all of a sudden our like iTunes purchases like skyrocketed and uh, we just had all of these followers on social media and a booking agency called us and said like, hey, you want to partner with us? And, and it was amazing. And the timing just felt just so divine, like so gracious of the Lord to say like, okay, I know you're feeling overwhelmed. I want you to keep playing your music. And so here's a way to do that. I think something that's interesting about all of that is like, we've even been talking about like, if the story that we've been describing of like what happened in 2009 happened now, iTunes sales are starting to go down, like streaming is up, but the revenue isn't quite the same the radio playlists have gotten a lot smaller. Like even YouTube and social media, it's really hard to cut through the noise. At the same time, I feel like there's plenty of opportunity. They're like, there's always potential. But like the way that our story unfolded won't work for somebody else now, right? I also think as you were describing, like buying the tour bus and stuff, like we were going to treat it as an RV mm-hmm. We ended up finding out Matt Matt Hammett was in Sanctus Real at the time. They had a tour bus that they treated like an RV. The reason why you would do that is because it was like way less expensive for insurance and you could drive it yourself and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, basically you would register it as like a personal vehicle rather than a commercial vehicle. And so it would be, yeah, the insurance would be a fraction of the cost. So like the Department of Transportation, like right before we bought a bus, the DOT showed up at a Sanctus Real show and said like, you can't drive it off the premises of the show. You need to get all your paperwork in line. Insurance is 10 times more expensive. So they had to scramble and find these like 12 passenger vans and trailers and stuff. And it was just a nightmare. So we're like, we don't want that to happen. I still don't know if buying a tour bus was a good idea or not. Like we lease it out when we're not using it, which is a lot. (laughs) And it's like a giant depreciating asset that breaks all the time. It's just like. Don't buy a tour bus. Well, and the thing, yeah, it's like it basically to run a tour bus, it costs about $1,000 a day. But it's like, 
Yeah, it's it's super expensive. And so it's funny because for us now, because we travel together uh, and Dave always plays guitar, I always sing. Sometimes we bring like a keys player along with us, but it's always way cheaper for us to just fly places. And especially because we always fly Southwest and I am a companion pass holder. So we've flown so much and we use our Southwest credit card to like buy thousands of CDs. And so we get all these points. So basically wherever Dave flies, I fly for free. And so our expenses are just so, like our overhead is very small. And also when we tour, if it's just us, we have one hotel room, one rental car, one plane ticket. And I I also think like kind of going back to what I was saying at the beginning about like choosing where not to spend your money. I feel like, let's say that we decided to form a band. We had another two band members. Like that means that when we play a show, when we sell albums, like you have to start chopping up all of that income. And like, even if there was one other person, it was a separate household, we would be taking half of what we make. And that, that would just mean that our lifestyle choices and like the choices associated with our business would have to change dramatically. And I feel like we've been in a position to be able to just basically maintain control of a lot of both those creative decisions and those business decisions. So like, I kind of want to at least hopefully address other elements that you guys might be interested in, but to like kind of fast forward from amazing radio time to today, after those two singles that we had in like 2009 and through 2011, basically since then we've pitched multiple singles. We've made multiple albums and like, nothing has really landed at radio. And it hurts me to think about (laughs) how many thousands of dollars we've like put into radio radio promotion and like those different projects. But what we have to like end up coming back to is, is our music valid regardless of whether it gets played on radio? Are these songs, songs that we believe in and we will continue to play regardless of whether radio people think they're good enough for their airwaves? Or it might not even be good enough. It might just be like whether they fit at that particular time, right? One of the things that we decided to do a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, is like we were raising a toddler and a baby and we decided like, hey, maybe we should write a lullaby project and like make an album for people who are in the stage of life that we are. And so we did that. Uh, over the course of the next year and a half, people started to say like, I love this album. I play it for my kids. They fall asleep to it. It's the only thing that calms them down. And then like one of the... Well, can I interject right here first? Sure. That time period for me, especially as a songwriter, I was feeling just kind of overwhelmed and burnt out and discouraged because we had pitched all these songs to radio. We felt like they liked us and then like rejection, rejection, rejection. And every time I sat down to write a song, I was putting pressure on myself that this needs to be the best song that I've ever written. It needs to be better than any song that I've ever written before to the point where I didn't even want to write anymore. I was putting pressure on myself to make a song that would have some life-changing spiritual impact on somebody's life. And I just, I couldn't write anything anymore. And so then this idea of like, what if we just like take a break from that and write a lullaby project? And it'll just be love songs from a parent's perspective to their child, just singing love and encouragement over them. It won't have any like theological, like super amazing spiritual, yeah, whatever, but I, I still felt like it was 
what the Lord had for us in that season. So I was like, okay, let's do it. And so that's why it was so interesting when this next thing happened. Okay, so we started to get messages from listeners who were in the hospital environments where they would say like, hey, I'm a nurse and I work in a neonatal intensive care unit and I play these songs over these babies and I'll watch the heart rate monitor and they might have sensory disorders or different things and like it will calm the child down. And then like when the music stops, like the heart rate goes up. And so I put the music back on and the heart rate goes back down. And we would like hear all of these different stories from families in in these hospital contexts. And so eventually the arrangement that we decided to kind of move forward with is that every lullaby album that we sell, for each album we sell, kind of like Tom's Shoes, we will donate one to a hospital. Over the course of the last year, year and a half or so, we've donated eight and a half thousand albums to different hospitals, which I think is like really incredible. But like none of those songs work for radio, right? That's not the story of that particular album. And that's okay. Yeah. And and I think it's just another example of God has given each of us and each one of you a special set of giftings and abilities, a unique perspective that only belongs to you. And when you walk in those giftings, then he uses you in ways that are totally surprising. Like it might not look like the person sitting next to you, but it still has just as much of an impact. Your Hands was on the radio. What Love Really Means was on the radio. Um, We pitched a couple of other songs. And then we had this song that we loved and that was really meaningful to us. It's a song we wrote called Who You Are. And it was a song about... Tragedy. Tra- tragedy and loss. Doesn't every radio station want to play that? Positive, encouraging, <laughs> tragedy. <Yeah. laughs> um, and so, but it's a song that we really believed in and it was connecting with our audiences whenever we played it. And so we pitched it to radio and they just rejected it. And we had an opportunity to hang out with a guy called Bob Goff, who is like the most encouraging human being on the planet. And so we were just telling him like, Bob, we feel rejected. Radio stations don't want our song. And it it like means so much to us. And he said, well, you guys just need to find a new metric. If you are using radio to define your success, then you're going to be unhappy. And so that was just a really like emotional, mental turning point for us just to figure out, okay, what defines success for us? Like what Dave was saying, like, does success mean having a song on the radio or does it, for us, success means hearing stories from people about how God is using the songs to impact their lives and to encourage them and to offer them hope. And so, and sometimes it's like a daily conversation of reminding each other, like when we start to get discouraged about like, ah, like why, why don't we fit in this model of the way things are, but then to realize, okay, well that it doesn't just because we're not on the radio or because we don't have a record deal, like it doesn't invalidate that we're making. But, and I think that it's such a tempting trap to fall into. I have two other things to add to that uh, that are kind of like the mantras that we have to kind of keep telling ourselves. One has to do with like seeking other people's approval because I think it's really frustrating to us to see friends of ours who might be endorsing somebody else's album, but they haven't endorsed one of our albums, you know? To see a friend's album get critical acclaim on some magazine where like ours was just like kind of average or whatever it happens to be. 
for some reason, we'll dwell on those negative things, but not necessarily celebrate our successes to, to the same degree. Whenever that happens, the thing that I keep coming back to is something that I heard Seth Godin say a long time ago. It's not for them, right? And like, why do I have to get so concerned trying to convince somebody to like something that they don't like rather than finding the people who like what it is that we do? One of the things that really irritates me is that like a bunch of middle-aged guys who are big decision makers don't like JJ's music. And it's like, JJ's audience is women, right? (laughs) Her audience is moms. And it's like, we need to play to the moms. Like, so if a, if a middle-aged male decision maker doesn't like her stuff, it's not for them. And that's okay. I feel like the other thing is it's really like, it's easy to grieve with those who grieve a lot of the time, but it's really difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. To see somebody who's like winning awards and their record is doing way better than yours and you don't, you love your record more than theirs. And the thing is, it's kind of the same thing that we started off telling you guys. That's not my story, right? We have our own sphere of influence and they have theirs. And so like, if they're being successful, good for them to just keep coming back to those. Like, it's not for them. That's not my story. And I know both of those are kind of like negative statements, but like, I'm trying to <laughs> like, to, to embrace who we are and what our identity is. So yeah, I, I feel like there's going to always be that tension, but there also needs to be like a way to continue reminding yourself of like, this is my mission. This is my audience. This is what I'm called to do. These are my giftings and kind of constantly come back to reevaluating like what, what is your purpose and like, why are you doing what it is that you're doing? Yeah. And something that's been really valuable to us too, is to kind of write out a mission statement. What are we like, what do we feel like God is accomplishing through us? through our music. What is our mission? And then when we have opportunities that come our way, we can kind of measure them against our mission statement and say, like, does this fulfill our mission? Does this fall under what we feel like God is calling us to do? Because there have been opportunities where like, wow, that'd be really cool. But that doesn't really fit what we feel like is is our priority. And I mean, we don't know where you guys are along that spectrum of trying to figure out what your specific calling is, because it's kind, of, it's kind of something that gets established a little bit further down the road, um, because there's also, when you're starting out, it's also really important to say yes to as many opportunities as you can while you're trying to figure out who you are, what you're good at, what God has, like, what is your special thing that God has gifted you to do. Let's thank Dave and JJ Heller for being so generous with their time and being here with us today. Amazing. So good. Hi, this is Seth Mosley. You've been listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. If you haven't already done so, head over to fullcirclegoeslive.com to get on the waiting list for our upcoming Music Makers Boot Camp. Don't miss your spot. If you sign up there, you get priority access to the first tickets as soon as they become available. This show is produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Jericho Scroggins. We will see you on the next episode.